Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. Iranian Christian leader Mehdi Dabaj, and I know I didn't say that right, spent nine years in prison for his faith. Nine years. One day, one of his prison guards approached him and said, does Jesus know that he has someone in this prison who loves him? To which Dabaj replied, Jesus Christ, our Lord, has millions of people who love him and who wish to sacrifice their lives for him. I too wish that I was one of them. After relating this, he wrote in his own journal, how sweet it will be if one day my life is sacrificed for him. He was murdered in 1994, six months after he was released from prison. Now, before we go on, I want to acknowledge that that kind of attitude is not natural to us. That's not normal. It's just not. Usually, when we're ridiculed, just even opposed verbally in public, or if by some chance we were punished for the sake of the gospel, we usually have a tendency to get angry, resentful. Those feelings come for a variety of reasons, but one of the greatest reasons that they come is the thought that I don't deserve this kind of treatment. It's a struggle for us, isn't it? So how did the apostles see the opposition they faced, and how did they respond? What caused them to respond the way that they did? I want you to observe that as we walk through this text this morning. And I want you to see together with me, again, as we move our way through this fifth chapter, we must yield to the plan of God, even if it doesn't fit our perceptions, and even if it involved suffering. Are we willing for that? Are we yielded to that? Now remember, as Luke writes this second book, the second part, really, of his Gospel. This is the ongoing account. Again, we often look at these as separate accounts. Luke and Acts are a volume. They go together. And we know that because at the beginning of the book, he again, he speaks to Theophilus and he says, Remember, I told you that all that Jesus began to do and to teach, by implication, I'm going to finish the story. I'm going to continue all that he kept doing through his apostles, through his followers, through by God's grace, us. The theme of the book you can clearly, easily see in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit, and you'll be witnesses to me to the ends of the earth. And, and, and really kind of the framework of the book is, that'll begin in Jerusalem, chapters 1 to 7. And then it'll move to Samaria and Judea, chapters 8 to 12. And then it'll finish to the ends of the earth, and the ends of the earth, at least where he finishes us is in Rome, Paul in Rome. So this is the framework, this is the context in which we find, once again, the apostles and their interaction with the Jewish leadership. Now remember, in these early verses, 
we are likely two, three, maybe four months removed from Jesus' trial and crucifixion. Folks, this isn't very long. This is the beginning of 2023. That's how far removed we are from interactions like this with the religious leaders, right? Now, again, as we walk through this, observe. We, you and I, we must yield to the plan of God, even if it doesn't fit our perceptions, and even if it involves suffering. Now, initially, what we see is the arrest and the release and the rearrest then of the apostles. There's several interesting, fascinating notes here that we want to observe. Really, the context, this whole entire section is on the opposition that the apostles are up against. Now, that opposition begins with a very fascinating phrase, a very fascinating phrase that we need to take about five minutes and unpack a little bit. Now, look back with me, if you would, at verse 17. He says, but the high priest, he rose up and all who were with him. That's the party of the Sadducees. Remember that the council, uh, this Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, it kind of went in waves. Sometimes the Pharisees would control that council. Sometimes the Sadducees were more in control. That was the case at this time. Sadducees are kind of the ruling sect of the, of the two at this time. Now, we're going to have somebody from the other side pop up at the end of this story. All right, But the Sadducees initially. Now, what I want you to note is this. Look at what he says. And they were filled with jealousy. Now, if you recall, we stopped and pulled back and did kind of an overview of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we discussed that, I explained to you that being filled with the Holy Spirit is an objective thing far more than a subjective thing. How do we know that? Because of the way this word is used. Guess what word he uses here at the beginning? Filled with jealousy. It's our same word as filled with the Spirit. Now, Here's what I want you to observe. Here's what I want you to note. Look at what comes out of the Sadducees as a result of being filled with jealousy. Throughout this text, we will observe from them, first, they arrest the apostles they throw them into a public prison. Then they arrest them again after the angel of the Lord lets them out. I mean, think through that for a moment. God lets them out of prison, and the Sadducees think, you know what, we're in charge. We're putting them back in prison. Quite a bit of hubris there, right? They're angry, so angry with the apostles, they literally want to kill them. Finally, when they release them, they beat them and command them not to talk about this anymore. Folks, listen to me. That's what comes from being filled with jealousy. Now contrast that to being filled with the Spirit. Listen carefully to me. That is objective. You can know whether or not somebody is controlled or filled by the Spirit by the way they respond. When you have a conversation at home and your spouse gets angry with you. You know what you can surmise? They're not probably filled with the Spirit in that moment. They're filled with something. It's not the Spirit, right? That's what's going on here. 
And what I want you to observe is this. This contrast actually goes a long way to instructing us what it looks like to be genuinely controlled. In essence, formed, shaped by the control of the Holy Spirit of God. Folks, that is the requirement of believers, that you are controlled by the Spirit. How often is that the case in our lives? What is it that fills you? What what is it that controls you? What dominates your thinking and responses and interactions? It can be a myriad of things. It could be fear. It could be greed. It could be envy. It could be lust. It could be pride. It could be ambition. It could be any number of things. But all of us, as we respond each and every day, we're full of something. We're we're filled with something. What is it? What is it in you? And what I want you to observe is it's jealousy for the Sadducees. And this reality shapes the whole rest of this chapter. Their being filled, controlled by jealousy shapes everything going forward. And listen carefully. That comes to a dangerous high point in their spiritual response. Their jealousy shapes their spiritual response. Listen carefully to me and don't miss this. Some of you are not spiritually where you ought to be because of what you're filled with. And again, that could be a myriad of things. But what's preventing you is what you're controlled by. So what is it today? What is it that controls you? It doesn't matter where you are spiritually. It doesn't matter how long you've been a believer. It doesn't matter uh, your progression, your uh, level of spiritual maturity. You today can be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And when you are, It'll shape what you do, and it'll shape the way you live. And that's the call. We've seen it from the very beginning of the book, right? So that's the beginning. That's kind of where this account begins. So after this, they arrest the apostles. They throw them in a public prison. That night, verse 19, an angel shows up, an angel of the Lord. Now, many times, uh, some of you would know this. Some of you may not know this as much, but... In the Old Testament, we have the angel of the Lord. We often identify that with a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, right? That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, Luke uses this term a couple of times, beginning all the way back in his gospel. As Jesus' birth is introduced, he says, an angel of the Lord. And then we find out who that angel is in a couple of those Accounts, And so I don't think this is the angel. I think this is, as Luke says, an angel of the Lord. That's who comes to them by night. He literally opens the door. He unlocks the door. He calls them out and he says, here's what we want you to do. Here's what God wants you to go do. Go proclaim all the words. Go proclaim all the words about Jesus, all the words about his life. All the words about salvation that Jesus alone can provide. Go tell the people again about Jesus and all he is and all that he's done and all that he can do. Go explain that. Go back out right where you came from yesterday. Go back out and teach him again. 
So at daybreak, they obey. Now, some suggest it's likely at daybreak or just before that the angel comes. He lets them out and they kind of just immediately go out there and bam, back back to work they go. But again, they are they go back to teaching. Now, one of the emphasis throughout this text, we'll see it listed numerous times, is teaching. The disciples often are credited with teaching the word. Teach, teaching, teach, 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 right? So part of the emphasis, part of what we need to understand is for God's people to appropriately be changed and grow, there must be teaching, right? At some point, we can deliver maybe something that makes folks feel good, feel fuzzy, Maybe it gives a little challenge here or there, but the truth is God's people need to be taught. You need to understand better who Jesus is and what Jesus came to accomplish and how, how is he going to do that in your life? And that teaching should shape God's people. That's why Luke emphasizes that here. We need teaching. You do. I do. We need to understand better who Jesus is. That's part of Luke's emphasis throughout. So the morning, the the high priest, the council, they come back into work and they're going to pull these guys out of prison and question them. And they send the guards down to get them out of jail and the guards go and they say they're not in there. And and, and the high priest and the council, they say, well, who left the door open? You know what I mean? How, How did these guys get out of there? They say, no, you don't understand. Everything's locked down tight, but they're not there. They're not in there. And then, can you imagine this? This is a great scene. Somebody runs in. They say, hey, the guys we threw in jail last night, they're out at Solomon's portico. They're preaching again. They're they're teaching people again. And the high priest says, what? What? Go get them and, and bring them back. Now, a couple things are fascinating here. Look at verse 25. So somebody runs in. They tell them that. Once again, the emphasis, they're teaching the people. They're standing in the temple teaching the people. So the apostles don't run. Folks, let's be honest. If you were arrested today for preaching Jesus and an angel appeared and let you out, no matter what that angel told you, you'd be gone. You would skip town. The the apostles don't do that. They go right back to where they were arrested the day before. And they start teaching again, right? Okay, so verse 26. So then the captain, he comes and he, he, he went and he brought them. But note this, and Luke notes this. Not by force. The captain of the guard literally goes and says, hey, will you guys come with me? I don't want to stir this crowd up. Right? They're still afraid of the people. That's been the case since Jesus. They're still afraid of the people. They're still afraid of the people's response. They're still afraid of the political backlash if they don't take care of these guys the right way. And so literally the captain of the guard comes and he says, hey, look, just can you guys just come with me? And this is what's fascinating to me. And this is what we sang a minute ago whose battle cry is love. The apostles have to know in this moment that they're not going for a nice luncheon with finger sandwiches, right? That's not what they're going to. This is not going to be a friendly interaction. And yet, they go. They willingly follow along. He did not take them by force. They freely went. So now we have the interaction. The high priest, he gives his spiel, verse 27, 28. They get there and the high priest questions them. And know what he says. 
Now think this through for a moment, and I want you to, I want you to kind of work this uh, through in your mind, at least for me. If you had several men, 12, let's say, you threw in a prison the night before. The next day, they're not there. I don't know about you, but wouldn't your question be, how'd you guys get out of there? How, no, really, how did you guys get out of the place that we locked you in? There were at least two or three doors to get in there and two or three different keys, and the guy who has them has been wearing them all night. How did you get out? Now, here's what amazes me. They don't care. And here's what's interesting, and this is what we have to be cautious of. For people who have heard the Bible, who have heard about the Lord, who have talked about this for their life, listen carefully to me, there comes a point at which, if we're not careful, there comes a point at which we're no longer interested in the God of the Bible. It's information. We know about it. But we don't know him. And you watch carefully. These very religious men, and let me suggest to you this morning, far more religious than any person sitting in this room. Far. Actually, I would go so far as to say, the bulk of those men, they were more religious than all of us. You take all of our spiritual disciplines, all of our Bible reading, stack it all together. We would maybe get to one of these guys. That's who they were. And yet they missed who God was. You can too. You can too. Consider, consider in your own heart your relationship with Jesus. This is Peter's call to the religious leaders. And this is why they get so mad. Now work this through with me for a second. Watch this. Look at what Peter says. Several things that are just amazing. So Peter answers. And before he does that, one thing that's worthy of note, once again, he says, you filled Jerusalem. That is not the same word that's used up above. This word is a word that simply means to fill something up. That, that's the idea of the word down below. Verse 27 as compared to the filled up in verse 17. All right. So they filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend. All right. So what the high priest is saying is, listen, you have an intention here and your intention is, your intention is to put the blame for the death of, the, of, of your leader to hang that on us. Your, your intent is to put his blood on our hands. Now stop for a second. First of all, what's not true about that? <laughs> right? I, I mean, bluntly, run that back in your mind what's gone on three months ago. It is yours. His blood is on your hands. And interestingly, Peter could have shied away from that. Um. <laughs> As I read Peter and work through his epistle, I feel like I know him better and better. I know exactly why Peter didn't back away from it, right? Because it was true. And Peter wasn't letting him off. Peter wasn't going to back off of that because they're thinking, well, you intend to pin this on us. Peter's going to say, well, no, I don't intend to. It's true. It is on you. You did it. Stand up and act like you did it. And get right with God, right? That, that's where Peter goes. Now that's fascinating. Peter, Peter has not minced words in any of his public sermons, which is amazing. And you think in your mind, at some point he's going to get in trouble. Truthfully, think this through again for a moment. Is he going to get in trouble? When he gets arrested, angels come to let him out. Is he really going to be in trouble? No. 
Because we have to obey men rather than God. He's going to say that in a minute. So look what he says. And this is where he begins. So here's his response. Intent is important. is very important. They're concerned not about their relationship with God. They're concerned about getting blamed for Jesus' death. That's their issue. So Peter starts. He says in verse 29 at the end, he says, we must, here's where he begins, we must obey God. Believe it or not, that word obey occurs four times in the New Testament. Four times. You know where it happens twice? In this very short response. It frames the response. Look what he says. Obey, verse 29. Look what he says in verse 32. Those who obey him. Obedience and obeying God frames this discussion. So look what he says. We must obey God rather than men. Rather than men. Now I don't know if Peter did that. But it wouldn't entirely surprise me if he did. We have to obey God rather than men. And he goes on. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. Now that's important. Why? Remember in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, it's actually Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 23, we have this statement about the curse of being hung on a tree. For a Jew, there is no worse way to die than dying as a public spectacle out in public, dying on a tree. This is a form of shame. It is a curse. The perception is you're cursed by God if you die that way. So Peter very intentionally is is pitting, is making sides here. Your side was... He was cursed by God and deserved to die the death of one who's cursed by God. You see the connection? That's why Peter makes that allusion back to the Torah, the law, Deuteronomy. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's describing. You thought he deserved to be cursed by God. Look at what God thought. The beginning of that verse, he says, first, the God of our fathers raised him. Again, the resurrection. Look at verse 31. And not only did he raise him, he exalted him. He's at his right hand right now. And he's declared him the ruler, the leader, and the savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now listen carefully. Peter is applying the truth of the resurrection And the exaltation of Jesus to the religious leaders. Jesus died, gentlemen, so that Israel, you, could repent and be forgiven of your sins. You say, how do you know that he would be saying that? Look at the response in verse 33. That's why they're so mad. You're telling me, you little peon fishermen, you're going to come in here and teach us, the guys who actually know the law and understand the the Torah and understand the truth, you're going to come tell us to repent and be forgiven? Yes, in fact, he is. And he did, right? And that's why he says in verse 32, and we're witnesses, and so is the Holy Spirit of God. And you know what? The Holy Spirit of God is a witness for all those who will obey him. Again, that's an application for them. Will you obey? 
Because remember in John, what does the Holy Spirit come to do? He comes to convict the world of what? Sin and righteousness and judgment and where they stand in relation to God. Literally saying, we're witnesses of this and so is the Holy Spirit of God and He's working on you guys right now. It's a pretty intense Sunday school lesson. You know what I'm saying? My word. Can you imagine? You could probably cut the, the tension in the room with a knife. Can you imagine being one of the more laid back apostles standing there by Peter? Peter, dial it down a little, like a little. But Peter declares very bluntly that they must respond to the same message that the apostles had and all the followers who have accepted in the first four chapters have responded to. The forgiveness that's available through Jesus by repenting. You personally must repent. And you personally must turn to Jesus. Listen carefully to me. That's not just an idea that you identify with at some point. At some point you turn and say, yes, I choose you. I want Jesus. And listen carefully to me. If you've never done that, do that today. You can do that today. And don't say, I've grown up in church or I've prayed a prayer a thousand times. That is not what I've asked you. The Sadducees and Pharisees that stood before Peter that day have prayed far more prayers than you will pray in the entirety of your lifetime. And yet Peter says, he came to Israel so that you could repent. And be forgiven. You and I must repent to be forgiven. You've got to turn to Jesus. Have you turned in faith to him? If not, do it today. Don't wait. Your eternity hangs in the balance. It really does. Your eternity hangs in the balance. Will you repent and turn to him. So again, they're witnesses, the Spirit's a witness, and now we have the response. The response is, is really the rest of the, the chapter, verse 33 on to the end. And he says there in verse 33, the, the immediate reaction. Now again, remember what's framing this. Jealousy and anger now, right, from, from the Sadducees. This is where they're coming from. So two things happen. They're enraged, and it says in the end they wanted to kill them. Now, this is one of those things with translations. We can't always do it because it doesn't always make sense. But the word wanted here in verse 33 is the exact same word that the high priest used for the disciples in verse 28. Remember what he said? You intend to bring this man's blood on us. Watch. And they intended to kill them. That's the same word. That was the plan. In their minds, when Peter finished speaking, and likely Peter's speaking for the group, but they're standing once again together. Twelve men standing together saying, essentially, you guys got to repent and you've got to turn from your sin to Jesus, the one you hung on a tree because you thought he was cursed. God didn't think he was cursed. He raised him up and exalted him. Now, who are you going to serve? This is the question in essence. And they're livid. And their intent, literally, because they are so enraged, it is to kill them. Now again, the word enraged is used another time. It's used in chapter 7. It's only used twice in our entire Bible. Twice in our entire New Testament. Here, 
And the second time it's used with Stephen. And guess what happened that time when they were enraged? They killed him. That's this word. It's a highly emotional word. The word literally at its root means to be sawed in half. They are so mad. They are so seething angry. They literally want to kill these 12 men right now. Now, interestingly enough, just like God let them out of jail, he put a wise man in the group. Look at verse 34. But a Pharisee, interestingly enough, why would the Sadducees ever listen to a Pharisee? I don't know. This itself could have started a fight, right? But he's a Pharisee in the council, and he's named Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel, to some degree, is famous even outside of Scripture. He's attested in numerous Jewish histories. Gamaliel's a real guy, and Gamaliel is a significant scribe, uh, rabbi, Uh, of significance and a teacher that is renowned within Judaism. Now, isn't this interesting that God works through this renowned guy to direct traffic here as these enraged, jealous, religious nuts, you know? And in some ways, that's what that word implies. There's just this jealousy for, I'm going to defend the name of God. So in a sense... The Sadducees are perceiving themselves as righteously indignant. We're right. These guys got to die. They are are leading people astray. That's in their mind. So he now speaks on their behalf, and in some ways not necessarily on their behalf initially. Look at what he says. He's a teacher of the law. He's held in high honor by all the people. He stood up, and he gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. You know what I love about this scenario? It's the beautiful example of the wisdom of cooler heads prevailing. Right? He doesn't leave the apostles standing up front while he gives whatever speech or talk he's about to give. He literally says, hey, let's take those 12 guys. Can you just take them out for a minute? Now think about this, as the high priest is trying these guys, you've got to have quite the clout to say, hey, time out, let's have them out, and I want to talk for a minute. That, that's who Gamaliel is. He, he has some clout. So he brings up a couple of examples. He says to them, men of Israel, take care. Be very careful what you do with these men. Be careful. He says, remember uh, the days there, uh, um, not that many days ago before, Thutis, he rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, they joined him. And then he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Example one, Thutis. Example two, Judas, the Galilean. Thankfully, they rhyme. You can remember them, right? Thutis and Judas. So Judas, he rose up, same thing, after the days of the census. So this is a long time ago, likely in the days of Augustus, when Jesus is first born. This is a rebellion from a while ago. 30 years, 33 years ago, but it's, it's common knowledge. Everybody would have understood it. So he says, remember, Judas the Galilean, he rose up and he drew away some of the people after him. He too perished. He died. And all who followed him were scattered. 
So, conclusion, so, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Now, what I want you to observe is this. First of all, this has to be fairly close to the time Jesus has died. Otherwise, this isn't very applicable. So again, this is not long after the resurrection and ascension, the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, the exaltation. We're talking 60 days, 80 days, 90 days. This is three months, maybe four at the most. And Gamaliel says, hey, remember these two guys? They died. And their following just vanished. It dispersed. It's the natural thing that happens with a cult. It just kind of goes away. Right? But he says in verse 39, But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And you might even be found opposing God. Gentlemen, do you want to be the religious teachers, the followers of Yahweh who are found to be opposing Him? Do you really want that to be your lasting legacy? Now, irony of ironies, it is. But He challenges them with that truth, with that question. Do you really want to be found in opposition to God Himself? First, you won't win. You won't win. But second, you'll be described as men who opposed God. And literally, Luke finishes verse 39 and he just says, so they took his advice. Well, it was wise counsel, right? But once again, God supernaturally uses an angel to step in and release him. And here, he supernaturally uses a Pharisee to step in on their side. And all 12 men. I mean, think of the impact if right here in this scenario, all 12 men die. What happens to this fledgling group? Now, obviously, in the hands of God, this fledgling group becomes exactly what we've become today. But in truth, God again steps in on behalf of his people, works the whole thing out. Look at what happens in verse 42. So they call him back in. And they did three things. They beat them. They charged them not to speak in Jesus' name. And they released them. They let them go. And what I want you to note is the response of the disciples. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing? They were just beaten. They were just told not to talk about this anymore. And they leave rejoicing. Why? Because God counted them worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. For Jesus' name. Work that through in your mind for a minute. Think of the loyalty that you have to have for somebody. Not just to endure suffering, but to rejoice in it. And folks, I will tell you, and I want you to genuinely consider for a moment, in our Western American culture, how loyal are you to Jesus? Folks, think, think about it for a minute. How hard is it for us just to show up on Sunday morning, say three out of four Sundays a month? 
How hard is that? It's hard, isn't it? Because we don't all do it. Think of the loyalty to endure a beating. Very likely, this is with a cat of nine tails. These men are whipped. They're whipped within one lash of death. That's how they did it. And with their backs bleeding and bruised, they go away rejoicing. Folks, listen to me. Whether we like it or not, we couldn't and wouldn't endure that. We just wouldn't. Our genuine commitment to Jesus is not that deep. But in truth, it should be. And for all of us, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever, you first need to realize your desperate need to repent and get forgiveness of sins through Jesus. You do so by just repenting, just acknowledging he's our hope. But for believers, the truth is, we need to really define where our loyalty lies. Because the fact is, someday we could suffer. There's the possibility of it someday. How would you endure? Easy. I'm not going to church at all. I'm just going to watch the live stream. Really? Really? Do you think the apostles are live stream Christians? I don't think they probably were. And it's demonstrated by their response to suffering. How do we respond when we face opposition? Folks, that is a significant question. And it's a question that we need to do some genuine soul searching on. And it goes back to the very beginning when we looked at what the Sadducees are filled with. They're filled with jealousy. What are you filled with? What am I filled with? Folks, if we're honest at times, you know what we're filled with? Me. That doesn't work for me, doesn't fit my schedule, I don't like it, I don't want to do it. We're filled with self. We're filled with pride. We're filled with our own ambition. We're filled with our own desires, our own love. And that shapes what we do. And folks, what Jesus calls believers to is to be shaped by something bigger than us. Are we being shaped by something bigger than us? than me. By God's grace, we should. We can be shaped by something bigger. Hopefully, as you can see, as we walk through this, we must yield to the plan of God, even if it doesn't fit our own perceptions. And that's where a lot of times the wrinkle can come for us. What's happening doesn't line up with what I think is right. That's where the Sadducees were. And in their righteous indignation, they literally wanted to kill the witnesses that God has assigned to spread the good news. All the while calling themselves servants of God, shepherds of his people. We can be in that same boat. And we need to be careful and we need to examine our own hearts. Are we doing, are we responding because of who Jesus is. Major Ian Thomas, he's the founder of Torchbearers Bible Schools, he challenged those he would speak to often with this statement. The Christian life can be explained only in terms of Jesus Christ. And if your life as a Christian can still be explained in terms of you, for instance, your personality, your 
willpower, your gifting, your talent, your money, your courage, your scholarship, your dedication, your sacrifice, your anything, then you may have a Christian walk, but you definitely, you definitely are not living it. And folks, that's the challenge for us, to live what we claim to possess in Jesus. Is what we say we believe and who we say we are, is that defining us? If we're not careful, it's not. It's our thing. It's whatever's filling us. That's what defines us. And it shouldn't. That's God's people. We should be controlled by the Spirit of God and striving to know Jesus and walk with Him every day. Is that your story? Is that, what, is that what's happening in your life? If it's not, it can be. And it must be if you're truly a follower of Jesus.